once again, you're listening to What's Up Aboard, the podcast. For those of you who may not know, this is a podcast that focuses on love, life, relationships, and everything in between. Everyone has a story to tell. I just want to know, what's yours? With that being said, one of the weekly goals of this podcast is to help people like you learn from our guests and comprehend information from a different lens of perspective. To all the listeners out there, both old and new, salute. Now let's begin this episode. Over to you, Wardy Ward. Thank you for that fine introduction, Mr. Ward. My name is Wardy Ward. I'm going to be your cool captain on this fantastic voyage once again. I suggest that everybody get in, sit down, and hold on tight because it's about to go down. Before we go forward, I want to give a shout out to my guest co-host, Tiki in the building. How are you? I'm wonderful this afternoon. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, would you do a shout out to our sponsor, please? Absolutely. Yeah. The sponsor is Amiru Skincare. It's a completely plant-based, organic skincare line. And if you care to visit the website, it's www.amiruskincare.com. Wonderful. Thank you. On our show, one of our models is everybody has a story to tell, but we just want to know yours. And today is no different. We have an in-studio guest today that certainly fits this criteria because he provides practical wisdom in difficult times of life. He is an expert in the areas of coaching, counseling, crisis intervention, and guidance. We're talking over 40 years of service, people. Please welcome Mr. Eric Owen Russell to the lab, but we'd like to call him Eric. How you doing, sir? Doing great. And how is everybody in Indianapolis, a place that I rolled through uh, not that long ago, but uh, you know, it's, it's Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, doing great. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing Yes. Glad to have you here. Um, in your own words, Eric, can you tell us who the person is that we're about to interview? Oh, thank you very much. And a, a great question. I like that question better than people asking me, tell us something about yourself. <laughs> this is much, much better. Well, thank you. <laughs> I am. Uh, well, let's just start with the fact that I'm a dad of uh, four adult children. I've got mm-hmm. uh, five grandkids at this point in time. Yes. Been a bunch of different places last year. At this point in time, I was down in Costa Rica, enjoying 95 degree weather. But uh, right now, I'm up in the Great Pacific Northwest, and it's cold. It's oh, so man. Um, as you mentioned, I do work intersection of where people are in crisis or trauma or difficult straits of their lives, and helping mm-hmm. them find their way out and through. I like to describe it sort of this way: I come alongside someone. Let's, let's just describe it, their, their life's on fire. And I mm-hmm. will get into that burning building with them. We'll look around for a little bit, typically, and go, yeah, pretty hot in here. I'll burn it down. <laughs> yes. You should probably leave. <laughs> yes. Like, this is how we go. This is where we go. This is how we get through this. This is how we get safely to the other side. So that's the work I do. And it doesn't really matter what their, what their situation is. Um, the challenge for us all is that we find ourselves in situations that we do not want to be in that are unexpected that are unwanted that we perceive will have a negative or a bad outcome that we absolutely do not want and the question is how do we get through how do we get out and help people get how people make that happen that's absolutely. 
Wow, that's very impressive. And, and I definitely want to get into that a little more. But before we get into those weeds of it all, uh, tell us, where did you grow up at? I'm curious to know. Yeah, I grew up um, across the other side of the continent. As I said before, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest right now, or as we yeah. like to say up here, Southwest British Columbia. Um, okay. And I grew up in Philadelphia hmm. and spent uh, 17, 18 years of my life there in Philadelphia and then left, went to college up in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, stayed in New England for a lot of years and then began an epic journey across the country heading over to here. So that's okay. where I've been for the past X number of, I, I guess, 62 years of my life. Wow. Okay. Now, do you have any brothers or sisters or are you, were you a single child? Gosh, I'm one of seven kids. Ooh, okay. A lot of kids. I like to say that I, like to say that I am uh, third, third of seven and I'm the very first redundancy. That is, mm. I got an older brother who's my old, or the oldest. I have an older sister, and then me. So I'm the first repeat. <laughs> I'm the first redundancy. I'm the youngest as the other boys in the family. Okay. I'm the uh, one of the middle kids in the family, not the middle, but one mm -hmm. of the. Uh, so there's seven of us. Okay. I asked that question because you have such a, a calmness about you. So maybe as a child, were you diagnosing the other kindergartners and figuring out their problems too? Or? Oh, no, 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 no. Matter of fact, you know, an interesting part of the backstory for me is I'm super far from that. Hmm. Um, I was one of those kids that people always look at with great pity and feel bad for because mm -hmm. I was the kid that was bullied, beaten up oh. in school. Yeah, I was the kid who was in the slow group. Um, it, we used to do that back in the 60s. So I was in that slow group, the kids who couldn't learn. Oh, okay. Any of that stuff. Uh, school was hard for me, very hard. And had it not been for teachers who eventually sort of caught on and cared, uh, I probably would not be here today because mm -hmm. the, those were the ones who looked at me and said, can we help? Because um, things aren't going well, we can tell. You know, you know, if you ever see kids in classrooms, there's some kids who sit in the front of the classroom mm -hmm. and some kids who sit sort of near the front. I was the one in the back of the classroom uh, because I just didn't get it. Yeah. I literally just did not understand anything that happened in the classroom setting. Things moved too fast. Things were too confusing. There were way too many other kids. I just did not understand. And interestingly enough, throughout that all, and uh, and really being rescued by teachers, um, I ended up at a Shishi prep school in Philadelphia. Ended up going to uh, a, 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 an exclusive private Ivy League college. Wow. And it was, all of these amazing things happen, and I attribute so much of that to the fact that there were people um, who cared. Yes. Teachers who stepped forward and said, um, I'm going to help. And I mean, honestly, I did raise my hand a lot with, <laughs> or help because I didn't understand. And I spent, I have to tell people, I spent most of my high school career, uh, either before school or after school, getting help from teachers. Mm. Uh, because I just I don't learn like other people learn. Okay. And I was other learners, and they were kind enough to, to really step up and help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of, of Les Brown, his story too. So I definitely can uh, see how that resonates there. Yeah. 
And that was a lot, that would very much inform the work that I do today mm. because they helped. I helped yeah. because they stepped in and really stuck a hand out through a lifeline to row to rescue boat. I don't, whatever term you want to use, um, they made the difference. They came forward and they helped. And that, as I said before, informs a lot of my work and how I am because I wouldn't be here today were it not for others who reached out to help me. Mm. So going through that experience, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up since you were kind of bullied a little bit? A teacher. Oh, wow. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I desperately wanted to be a teacher because teachers made all the difference in my life. And you know what the interesting thing about teachers are? I do actually a lot of work with teachers. Uh, okay. do a lot of workshops and uh, conferences and things like that and talk to teachers all the time. Um, one interesting thing about teachers is the fact that if you've got a good teacher, they're always tuned in what's happening in the classroom. They're tuned in to where the kids are. They're tuned in to who, who needs help, where they are, how they're surviving, how they're not surviving. And I had this one teacher. He was a, a chemistry teacher in 11th grade. Herb Basso is his name. And uh, see, you remember these names, too. Don't you remember your teacher's names? Yes. You're like, mm -hmm, absolutely. So I was trying to do this equation once. You know how they have those equations in chemistry? Like, let's say the equation for water, H2O, water. Mm -hmm one hydrogen, two hydrogen plus one oxygen or something like, I don't even know. Holds <laughs> yeah. water. So, you know, you have the boxes. Yes. So you write the box. So I put H in one box and then let's say I put the next thing in the next box. And then the third, and, and then the last box we had to put the answer was water. And that third box, I wrote divine intervention. There you and go. <laughs> 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 and Mr. Basso came up to me after class event. Uh, uh, I, I noticed your test and um, can we talk after class? <laughs> <laughs> what grade was this? 11th grade. 11th grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had another teacher, a history prop in college. And this is like the old academy. I mean, it was just like, dude, it's like, um, his name was um, uh, Jack Thomas, big Jack Thomas. And uh, Jack had bow tie, white hair, and dude was about six foot four inches tall. This was like old school academy. Have you ever seen Dead Poet Society? Yes. That's what this was. There you go. <laughs> so we're sitting in this American history class, and uh, he says to me, he hands back like our, one of the papers that we wrote, and he leans down and he says, Can we talk? <laughs> He's like, Okay. So he, uh, we met after class and he says, Mr. Russell, because he called us Mr. and Miss, Mr. Yeah. Russell, I generally can tell a student's work by their classroom participation. And he mm -hmm. takes like the paper I had handed him, he handed it back to me and he kind of like tosses it across the desk and he goes, I know your classroom participation, but this paper you wrote, he goes, are you trying to snow me? It was just like, <laughs> he, he just was like, he just, no hold barred. He goes, you must do better because you can do better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just one of those moments of, it was a moment of reckoning. Yeah. But it was just another instance of someone saying, you know what? You can do better. You're in a bad way. I don't know why, but you need to rise and I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. so another one. This was another one of those really inspiring moments for me. Uh, that was really a turning point that helped me to become a different person. Yeah. A lot of that is all the work I did. I was going to ask you, uh, 
at what point did you realize that you could actually help others if you were kind of in that situation yourself? So, man, I got to tie a bunch of thoughts together with this. Okay. Remember that I wanted to be a teacher? Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't only happen because of what was happening in the classroom, but there were some other moments that ties into the question you asked about helping others. Because I don't necessarily consider the work I do helping others, but okay. what I consider the work I do is instructing and teaching and dispensing verbal wisdom or pointing the way and helping people understand what needs to happen in their lives. So in a lot of ways, I actually am teaching um, in the work I do. And that extends not just back to the classroom situations where I was really inspired by teachers, but it goes even further back to that when I was about nine years old and I was in a situation where I had to, or just given some information. And in that information, it was like, I remember turning to some of the older adults and other people in the room and it was like, so this is what this means. You need to do da 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 And some of the adults are like, uh-oh. What's going on? This little guy, I can teach. He understands. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was really a moment, too, of sort of reckoning and understanding maybe what some people might call giftedness. Yes. Maybe mm-hmm. Some people might call understanding, maybe what some people might call insight. Mm-hmm. Well, there was just a native ability um, to help people understand things that they perhaps might not ordinarily be able to understand or see but to bring clarity if you will to a situation so that someone can take the information that's there understand it and then use it in some useful way Mm, yes that kind of uh brings me to something you had mentioned before about reaction can you talk about reaction and how that actually works? Explain that cycle. And and also, it's like a dual question here. Can you actually use reaction on yourself knowing how this works? How does that work for an individual to do it? Sure, sure. I think that what you're probably referring to is when I talk about um, when we hit a tough spot and a mm-hmm. difficult part of our lives or a challenging situation, what happens? So we our physiology is designed to keep us safe this organism this piece of biology has built-in systems processes that literally will keep you safe and part of that process is what happens in our brain in the amygdala and then the amygdala is is it's just called the early warning system the sentry the the panic button if you will that when we sense threat or stressful situations, the amygdala fires. And what it does is it prepares the body, it readies the body for for doing something to keep it safe. And whatever it is, it's just like, well, this is what we need to do, we need to get ready because something's gonna, something's gonna happen. So we need to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. And that's our reaction. And the reaction that we have is always physiological and it focuses on two things. 
at least these two things, self-defense and self-protection. Those are two things it focuses on. It feels like I need to stay safe, so I'm gonna defend myself or I'm gonna protect myself. It doesn't matter how I do it, that's what's gonna happen. That's our reactive phase. And then the reactive phase, um, it's always a closed process, we close. Um, and you can tell when someone's in a reactive phase because they often will protect themselves. So watch someone's body language, fold the mm. arms cross. Yeah. I always look at a person, see if they cross their legs and fold their arms, they're a total shutdown. They don't even want to hear it. Mm. Because they're in self-protection and self-defensiveness. So that's the first process. The hard part about reaction is that reaction never solves problems. What reaction does is it keeps you safe but it doesn't solve the problem. What we have to do when we're in a difficult, tight spot is we have to get through that by first getting out of that reactive process. Got to get out of that reactive state. And it's hard to do on our own, quite frankly, because what the amygdala does is it shuts off the prefrontal cortex in the brain, which is where we have executive function, reasoning, thought, all that stuff lives in the prefrontal cortex. But the amygdala kicks in and takes over, shuts that down and slows it down so that you're actually not thinking which is why so many people in difficult spots, you ask them later, well, why'd you do that? They don't have a rhyme or reason. They, mm-hmm. just, they just did it. They reacted. Yeah. And, and we always say that when people in those types of situations, particularly after something that has been really traumatic, death, significant injury, divorce, job loss, do not do anything important. Do not make any important or big decisions because you're probably not thinking and you're not. Mm-hmm. And it's not a matter of, I think I'm thinking. It literally is physiologically, your brain has been, your, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part, the executive function part of it has just been shut off. Mm-hmm. So with that on pause or on hold, we need to do two things in that moment in order to get out of that reactive state. The first thing we need to do, if we can do, is I always like to say, if we have a good friend, a coach, somebody who we trust, and we need to make an important decision, you need to borrow somebody else's prefrontal cortex because yours is offline. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so if mine's offline and shut down, it's like, hey, Kiki, I got some decisions to make. Can you help? Because right now, I think I can think, but I know I can't because I'm in a reactive state. So can you help me think this thing through? Because I need your prefrontal cortex. The other thing that we can do, kind of jumpstart, reboot our prefrontal cortex. And the way that I always recommend that we do this is going to almost sound counterintuitive, but it is actually quite brilliant. And that is, uh, do either of you journal? I do. Do you have any journals in the house? I used to. I used to. I was going through something tough. And did it help? It did. There you go. Yeah. And there's several physiological reasons why journaling, and here's the journaling, here's the important part, is don't sit at your computer and journal or your phone. Get a journal and write in it because there's a, there is something that happens when it comes to writing by hand that kickstarts, restarts, reboots the prefrontal cortex. And it has to do with all the things that actually the mechanical motion of writing requires which is the other parts of your brain. When you're writing, you're actually taking thought, translating it mechanically through your writing process and putting it on paper, which although it's brief, the memory is required to that, to do that. So it turns back your memory back on. And then Mm -hmm. as you're writing and looking at what you're reading, you have to remember the logical historical order 
And that reboots logic again in your brain. And then you've got the whole process of, is that right or is that wrong what I wrote down? So now you're starting to do all of the calculations, all of the thinking processes that requires you to write accurately on a piece of paper or in your journal. As a result, the amygdala starts to go away and the prefrontal cortex comes back online again. And then there's the whole process and understanding of what happens with our emotions. Like you said, when we're going through difficult things, we need to process those emotions. When you start writing them down, it literally shortens the time period between the onset of the emotional experience and its ending, simply because you're writing it down. I don't know all the science, but there's a Mm. large body of research about this that actually substantiates what I'm telling you is what I read in the research. Yeah. That's why handwriting in a journal is so important when you're going through difficult moments and difficult times. Keeps your prefrontal cortex, keeps the thinking part of your brain online and helps you process emotions and thoughts so you are actually able to get through that uh, more quickly. So that's the reactive part of the process and how we get out of that. Yeah, I got to remember that. I like to, to write it. I'm definitely going to do that. I see the value in that. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, but Eric, I understand as imperfect humans, uh, we go through growing pain sometimes. And as you point out, we ask, what's the purpose in it? Is that a good question to ask? Or should we look at that from a different perspective? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Every, everybody wants to know why. Right. Yes. Yeah. He wants to know why. So this morning, I had uh, to tell you a little, little story. This morning, I had some clothing sitting out drying, and it was a windy night, and it blew off. So kind of like blew down a little hill. So I had to hike on down to get it. So on the way up, I slipped and fell. Oh, sorry. Yeah, my shoulder. It gets aggravated an old injury which is it's in and of itself is a funny story but we won't we won't die <laughs> that's a funny story yeah. and uh so i'm coming back up the hill and it's just like you know this hurts but i never asked why <laughs> i never asked why and i never asked um how this is going to help or hurt yeah. But what I did, so in other words, it didn't ask, well, what was the purpose of me falling? Why ask that question? Yeah. I have no idea often what the purpose of a thing is. But I do know this, which is that when we go through difficult times, one thing is almost always true is that we misunderstand or we misinterpret dark days and troubling times often by only looking at what happened to us through the lens of what was difficult, what was hard, what was painful, but never through the lens of what those experiences make possible. Mm. Because um, as I like to say, you know, success, that is all the more sweeter when we've experienced repeated failure. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Happiness and joy is all the more pleasant only because we've experienced so many dark and difficult days. And I like to say that um, there's a magic that happens at night. If you've ever been out at night, Mm -hmm. darkness is kind of magical and mysterious. And we wouldn't really enjoy and understand what that is unless we spend a lot of time out in the daylight where you can see everything. Mm -hmm. But when you're out in the dark, like in the country, in the trees, 
there's something wild and mysterious about it that we can learn to appreciate. But the only reason we really appreciate it is because we spend so much time in the daylight. Right. So often, our difficult and hard moments, we don't necessarily need to ask what's the purpose in it, but we can live in what it has helped to make possible for us in our lives. So don't necessarily ask the why, but stay with, in these tough moments, what has it helped make possible in my life? Now, I'm going to throw this caveat out there. I would never say to anybody that that hardship that you went through where there was irreplaceable loss, a loved one, a disease or something of that nature that you should now look around your life and say, oh, my life is so much better. I can appreciate this or appreciate that. Although that is true with with a number of people. they, they have a, a word for it. We talk about PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Like stress syndrome, uh, stress disorder. There's this phrase that we use called, uh, and I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to reach to try and get it. It's post-traumatic stress benefit. Or something mm, like that. Okay. It's a psychological term, which is what did we learn? How are we better? How has life changed for the good as there's always stress or traumatic situation that we're faced with? Again, it's not a blanket statement that says this is true across the board, but there are so many moments where we go through difficult, hard, challenging, traumatic situations where there is some key learning or some key appreciation that is the result of it that changes the way that we can either look back at what happened, but definitely the way that we look forward into life. I see. Yeah. Now, in harmony with that, how important is hope to an individual? Yeah, uh, critically important. Hope is critically important. Um, I've got an acronym, an acronym, that word that we use letters for that spells out other things. Yeah, that thing. Um, having options, possibilities. That's H is having, O is options, P is possibilities. And E, I'm just going to make it up to entertain you. (laughs) 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 Because hope actually is the thing that we look to because in hope, there are options. Mm -hmm. If you don't have options, you don't have hope. It doesn't exist. Hope is simply a statement that says that there are options and there are possibilities that are available to me without options and possibilities there is no hope so hope isn't something that we reach for and say oh I just hope this turns out well that's what's called wishful thinking hope is a real thing because we have options and we have possibilities so when someone says to me that they have hope they are really talking about the fact they have options and possibilities in their lives that they can be the actual real E is expectation. They can have positive expectation. So mm-hmm. it's having options, possibilities that lead to real expectations in a life um, that things are going to turn out well for you. That's hope. So yeah. often people will say to me, oh, you know, Eric, just have hope or I have hope or I hope this or hope that. And it's like, man, you're just living in wish you're thinking, as I said before. That's just like, what is that? Mm-hmm. You can't hold on to that. But tell me what your options are. Yes. Options and give us possibility. Once I have options, I know that might be possible, that might be possible, that might be possible. That's good. Now I have possibilities. Now I can have 
positive expectation. My expectations are something that I can look forward to that are positive because I realize that there are possibilities that exist. I hope that that's clear. Yes, it's clear. Yeah. Yes. So, so I'm thinking, because as you pointed out before, that uh, we have to weather storms in our life. So we can't escape the storms, right? So you got to have that hope. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a, that's a great analogy because when I think about uh, storms, the analogy that always comes to my mind is a boat or a large passenger cruise ship that is out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And every single time you see a lifeboat, that lifeboat is the symbol of what? Of hope. Right. That lifeboat says if this ship, this big ship, the bigger ship goes down, the life vest and the lifeboat are there to step in as the next option to give me possibility so that there will be, so I can have a positive expectation to come out of this. Mm-hmm. So that's what we need. If we look up at that, if we look up on that big ocean liner, there are no lifeboats. That's yeah. my story right yeah. there. Then it my does. only hope is in, the, is in this boat not going down. If this boat goes down and you're someone like me who can't swim, <laughs> yeah. I got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, you you mentioned water. I've seen a lot of uh, people buy water. Do you think water has a common effect on us or anything? Or it's just me? I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on the water? I don't know. You tell me. I drink a lot of it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I drink like about three liters of water a day. I know we need it. I know that we can. Someone told me once. Um, three days without it, it was three it was in threes like three days without water you can last um, three minutes without air three minutes without air is what it was thank you Kiki you know what go ahead so, so say what it is you know this three minutes without air three yeah. days three days without water three weeks without food yeah wow I can't go three weeks mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think that that's it so Air and water are really important. All of us probably have a couple pounds we could lose. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm trying to work that out myself. I guess I'm thinking also the the effects of being near water. It's like people will go sit by water. They seem to be calmer or relaxed too. I, I kind of noticed that as well. Thought that was interesting. Yeah, water is um, the ocean. In particular for me is what I call one of my um, spiritual places. I think that. For people who believe that there is something outside of our physical reality, then my sense is that places like oceans, um, forests, mountains, skies have a way of reminding us that there's more mm-hmm. to our physical reality than what we think actually exists. So for me, one of those opportunities are oceans. I've always kind of had an an affinity for being near the water, being near this large body of water because Mm -hmm. of what it in many instances suggests to me. When I look out at an ocean, um, you can't see the other shore. It just keeps Mm -hmm. Mm going. So there's this sense of of infinity. There's a sense of endlessness, yes. there's a sense of eternity that exists there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this raw power that is part of the ocean experience that is beyond what I can even fathom. 
but it's there and mm. stepping actually into the water we sort of become part of that it's really kind of neat that is oceans for me are unfathomably deep yes the sense of mystery that they always contain too so all this is part of the experience to me and then of course we know there are all these negative ions that come from the salt water that are that are helpful to us that are just sort of calming and I've always found that sitting by the ocean in the warmth of the sun on a warm sandy beach, just listening to the waves come in, it's hypnotic. Yes. You find yourself just in another place. Yeah. Another place. And the problems that we had, or at least for me, the problems I had when sitting in front of all that, they just go. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that important. Gone. Just not that important anymore. Yeah. I had the opportunity to see both oceans. And once when I was in California, I went to, to the ocean and I was in such awe because I was thinking that all this water out there, you know, as far as you could see, but it comes up to the shore and it stops. Nobody's control. I mean, well, we know the higher power is definitely doing it. It's just amazing to think that, wow, you can control all this and we're, we're nothing. We're nothing. So, yeah, that, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that out as well, too. But let me move on to my next question. Sure. I'm pretty sure anyone who has dated or definitely those who enter into marriage have experienced trials. I want to know, what do you think it takes for couples to realize that they need help? Or is it just an example? Or people think, I need you to fix him or I need you to fix her because she crazy. What does it take for couples to do um, I think as you're, uh, my, my internet or your connection just got a little bit slow there. So can you repeat the question? Okay. More? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was basically saying that those who enter into marriage or relationships uh, and when they get into that crisis mode and they need help, yeah. how do you work with people who need help? Or are they coming to you and saying, I need you to fix him or I need you to fix her because he or she may be crazy. How do you deal with that? Or what does it take for people to realize we need help? Well, first of all, I got I got to preface my comments by I don't do marriage counseling anymore. Okay. There was, point, there was a point in time in my life, way back during my pastoral days, right there, okay. marriage counseling. Okay. Uh, I don't do that anymore. So I got to go into the way back machine. Okay. And think about what might be helpful in these situations. Um, so I'm going to generalize out. One of the hardest things for us to do, it seems, is to raise our hand and say, I need help. I got asked this question a lot during the pandemic. I must have been very busy. Quite the answer is yes and no. What we did mostly as humans during the pandemic is double down on strategies that we have used before. That's mm -hmm. what we've done. Okay. So there's this interesting equation that goes like this. Um, as I said before, this organism is designed to keep ourselves safe. So we all have strategies that we've adopted from when we were little that keep us safe. Those strategies, when we are encounter threat or any situation that makes us feel unsafe, get kicked in. They, they light up, they start, they turn on, they get activated. They show up in how we solve problems. So if I'm having difficulty in a stressful situation in my relationships, 
then how I'm going to go about solving that problem is the same way I likely will go about keeping myself safe because the problem is often perceived as a threat. So that threat has to be dealt with the same way I would deal with anything that keeps me safe. And actually this has to do with how we live our lives. So what we typically are going to do in that situation for both the husband and the wife, the partners, whatever they happen to be, uh, siblings, parents, it doesn't matter. Whatever the configuration of the coupling happens to be or the relationship happens to be, is this first is going to be this leaning into the strategies that I typically employ to keep myself safe. We don't necessarily recognize that that's happening but we see it because it's how we solve our problems and how we solve our problems is based on how we keep ourselves safe, okay? So we're always gonna lean into how we would normally solve our problems. And that's how we're gonna show up in those moments of conflict, of any type of difficulty or challenge that we're faced with, with whatever the relationship happens to be. What's difficult about that is unless a person, you, me, anybody, I'm just as guilty as everybody else here because it's just the way we're wired as humans, is it takes a lot for me, you, anybody to say, hey, this isn't working. I need help. Mm -hmm. So what's going to cause that to change are two things. Number one, the value that we place on the thing that is that is in danger. So if it's my relationship and that's in danger, and if I highly value that, if I get to the point where I see that what I'm doing isn't working and I value that and I want to keep it, then now I'm going to start to do something different. But it's really all about how much I value the thing that is in danger, that is in jeopardy, that is threatened. And that's why we place so much emphasis on self-defense and self-protection because we value ourselves. Mm. So... When that is threatened, relationship, and I realize that what I'm doing isn't working, and my strategies are failing, then I might do something about it then. So I think that what generally gets people to the table, you, me, anybody, doesn't matter if it's a relationship, a job, parenting, friendship, how I'm managing my finances, is when I get to the point where we're going to call this rock bottom. We're going to call this um, without options. We're going to call this nothing left I can do. We're going to call this no one's coming for me. I don't care what you call it. Any yes. or all of these things. At that point in time, we're going to raise our hands. When we get close to that point, and we're going to realize that I need something more. I need something more. And that's when we begin the process of trying to figure out what that is and getting the help that we need. So if we can back away from that place where we realize that we're actually now, just the analogy I want to use, where we're actually at the edge of the cliff. We can back further away from the edge of the cliff by simply having the realization of two things. One, I do not always have the answers more importantly I live let me back up from that I have available to me help I just need to raise my hand and ask for help that requires vulnerability it requires self-knowledge it requires awareness but more than anything it just requires 
the opportunity for me to look into myself and say, maybe there's another way. Maybe there are other opinions and thoughts. Let me get at least those in here and see what I can do that will help me go forward. There's a proverb that says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's another proverb that says, the fool sees danger and keeps going, but the wise man, and the fool sees danger and keeps going and suffers for it, but the wise man sees danger and takes refuge. So we really need to be in the place where we're wise. And it's really critical for us not to think that we have all the answers. That's as true for me as it is for anybody. As it is for anybody. And that's a real realization that I have about myself. I have some answers, which might be good some of the time. Mm -hmm. But believe me, I know that what I say isn't good all the time. And it's not always applicable in every circumstance or situation. So if it helps somebody, great. If it doesn't help somebody, okay. Right, yeah. It wasn't for you. It wasn't for you. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Does that help? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes. Did you have a lot of words? Yeah. (laughs) You're fine. You're fine. Did you have a thought, Tiki? No, I just appreciated what he was saying. I'm listening, listening and learning, taking it in, kind of recognizing some things about myself, too. So it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let me move on to my next question. Yeah. Um, This one is about uh, crisis intervention. Uh, some common examples that I looked up was suicide prevention uh, by telephone hotlines, hospital-based crisis intervention, and community-based mental health services that are mobilized during disaster. So I want you to elaborate on your role in this area and how you uh, help people with uh, crisis intervention. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of those situations, the situation that you mentioned, such as disaster uh, recovery efforts and interventions there and, and then suicide prevention, I don't necessarily do that type of work. For instance, um, as, a, as a coach, as a professional coach, if I do have someone who is suicidal, I always refer people who are in mental health crisis, always get referred to appropriate uh, services to help them. So I act in a lot of ways as a sensory yes. that listens and if I hear clues in terms of what a person is, mm-hmm. is saying to me, either with self-harm or yes. a situation that might require a different type of intervention, I always refer so those people can get the help that they need. The key thing in many instances, let's talk about someone who's facing a mental health crisis, is can we scaffold that person before they even get there? so that they aren't looking at taking their own life or any type of self-harm. We don't even get there. Remember I said before about the couple situation, can we back up? Let's get people away from the edge of the precipice so that they have the skills, the tools, and the abilities that they don't even get close to that point in time. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes what happens for us is there's, for in many cases, there has been things that have occurred in the person's life that will point them in a direction. Can we intervene to to turn them away from where they might end up if left alone to continue down that road? So when I talk about my work in terms of crisis intervention, I'm doing two things. One, I'm stepping in when someone's facing uh, certain five types of crisis and problems in their lives to act as how do we point in a direction to get you out of here, to get you free, to get you to a place where you can go on with your life well. The other work I do is how do we prevent people from actually even getting there, providing with tools and skills 
and ways of being that will help to shield, strengthen, and keep them focused on moving in a positive direction in their life rather than potentially moving off the rails or going off the rails in some places. So that would be the, the two ways that would work in terms of crisis intervention with a person or a group or a family or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Well, I um I work with uh, CPS as uh, my main job, and uh, I look for those clues too when it comes yeah. to this suicide. And I was surprised to know that um, the majority of people who are committing suicide are, are older white males and um, American Indians as well too. But I'm just I don't know maybe I was culturally biased, but I was thinking why would a white guy want to take his own life? I just Seem like they got a lot going for themselves, you know. I'm just saying, but that's interesting. Yeah, I think that that's kind of part of the problem, and that yeah. could be one of the reasons why the uh, why that rate is so high. Um, so, one of the interesting, almost befuddling, maybe. I'm, I'm not a therapist. I don't know all the reasons behind the statistics, but I'll give you what the statistics are. So. The majority of suicides in North America, that includes Canada and uh, the U.S., are committed by middle-aged white men, and they represent, of the total numbers of suicides, and this has been true for the past five, six years, uh, better than 70% of all suicides. Wow. It's not teenagers. It's not men. I'm sorry, it's not teenagers. It's not uh, those groups of people who you might think, but it's middle-aged white men. And it may have everything to do with expectations that they place on themselves based on what society might hold up for them as um, where they should be or how they should be or what they should be able to do. And maybe that isn't true for them. And as a result, they uh, find themselves sad, disappointed without the supports that they need to see themselves with accuracy it leads to despondency um, and they take their lives and and also must be added here that men are more likely to succeed in a suicide attempt than yeah. um, and ch- and children are but men will see if they want to commit suicide they will Uh, Mm -hmm. This is one of those sad statistics that I know all too well because I had a very good friend of mine who uh, took his life about 10 years or so ago. Oh, Um, sorry about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. one of my besties, one of his best friends, uh, he was about 54, uh, he did the same thing, took his life. Um, And we just continue to see this over and over and over and over and over again. There really is a mental health crisis in that particular cohort that at this point in time has largely gone not necessarily unnoticed because it's very easy to find. If you just look up the statistics for suicide, it's right there. Right. But but very few people are actually calling it out and saying, this is a problem for this particular cohort. It needs to be addressed. We need to figure out why it's happening so that it can get fixed. Mm-hmm. We just don't necessarily hear people saying this out loud all the time and it needs to be said yes. we hear this about other groups we hear this about other populations and their problems and their challenges this is a group that is really suffering really suffering yeah really i agree suffering. on the uh, on the other side of that spectrum when it comes to the people the global majority or black people mm-hmm. 
why do you think we don't like getting help? It's because I know a lot of my friends are like, man, I'm not going to talk to a counselor. I'm not going to do that. Man. What, what do you think our, our reasons are for, for doing that or refusing it? I think largely mistrust. That's really what I think. I think a lot of it has to do with mistrust of healthcare. Um, so my oldest son is a mistrust. Is a mistrust. So my oldest son is a medical doctor, and um, he's a physician out in uh, California. And one of the things that happened, which is true about COVID, was all the work that they needed to do in this particular hospital for these, as Reza Medican would say, these communities of culture to get vaccinated. They just didn't trust the medical care system. And a lot of that, ah. there's good reasons why. Um, we know that that medicine has in large ways, particularly medicine in North America and the US has failed people of color. Oh, so there's yeah. a large degree of mistrust of the medical of the healthcare system under which mental health care fits and falls. But I think that that's part of the reason. I also think that there's also cultural reasons uh, that are in, that are self-inflicted wounds that we need to fix because there's no reason not to get the help that we need um, of people of culture, people of color, of people here that are part of these, uh, part of here in North America. We need help. We need to be going out and asking for help. And we need to overcome these self-inflicted wounds. I had a, a conversation recently um, with one of our brothers and it was a fascinating conversation. He talked about, he raised the issue of respect. It was really interesting. And he said to me, he said, you know, I just don't want to be disrespected. I went, I was stop. I literally went, stop. This is not about disrespect and it's not about respect. Respect is a sad substitute, particularly among men for the issue of acceptance. Respect is not what we actually want as men, especially and particularly as men of color. What we actually want is acceptance. But what men have fallen into is a cycle that goes back as far as time, which has to do with men do what I call exploits. That is, we go out, we slay the dragon. You slay the dragon because slaying the dragon gives you respect. The other guy's like, whoa, slay a dragon. You see that dragon? You see the size of the dragon? Whoa, fire breathing too. And all that kind of good stuff. He killed that. Oh, oh, get in here, man. Come on in here. Because we respect you. That gives them welcome. Welcome. And once you have welcome, you can have rest. You sit around the fire. They bring you big legs of drumsticks. The dogs are there. The fire's roaring. Life's good. Because you slay the dragon. And then some other dude rolls in and he slayed four dragons. Mm. Now everybody's looking at you with your one dragon and, no, and, and you don't you don't raid anymore. Now you gotta go out and slay five dragons to get respect back so that you can then have welcome. So then you can have rest. But none of that was ever how any human being, and it doesn't matter what you call your skin is, how we enter the world. It's never about respect. It was always about love and acceptance because that's really what we want. We want acceptance and we want love. And as I said to this young brother, I said to him, I said, look, your son, do you respect him? Who's <laughs> what he when your kid's one years old. Do you respect him? He said, no. Hey. But you love him, don't you? He was like, I'd give my life for him. You accept him as he is, messy, vomiting, mm -hmm. soiling his diapers, everything, don't you? Yeah. 
that's how we come into the world when we enter most healthy family units. And we never ever stray far from that desire of the original acceptance and love that was part of our world in our initial years of, the, of being alive on this earth. But we replace it with things like respect. We replace it with things like, like um, doing exploits. It was never that way. What we actually want is we want acceptance, just as acceptance as is, as is. And we want love. That's what we want. So for many of us, I think one of the problem, particularly maybe in communities of culture, because we talk about respect, we hear it all the time, we hear it in songs, we talk about each other. Uh, was it Gladys Knight, R-E-S-P-E-C-T? Talking mm-hmm. about it. Uh, mm-hmm. No, never about that. Yeah. It's actually about acceptance. I want you to accept me as is and to love me. And if we have that, we have more than what we could ever expect want or need is simply acceptance and love so I think that part of the interference with uh, getting members of our communities into therapy or coaching or whatever help they need is getting past the barrier of respect and getting into the realm of acceptance and love and one of the most powerful parts of coaching the work I do and therapy is sitting with someone who won't judge you, who will accept what you say, and you can just sit and be real and talk. And like this young brother said to me, I've told you things I've never told to anybody. Anybody? Yeah. That's what this work is about, where you can mm-hmm. have acceptance in the form of just say it. Yeah. No one's judging. No one's yep. condemning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Say space. You're at liberty. You're at liberty to be here in this safe space. Yes, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, again, we're talking to Mr. Eric Russell today on the What's Up Award podcast. And side note, I think that respect was Aretha Franklin. Just in case. Yes, I'm anybody, sorry. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Don't want anybody writing and telling me, "Hey, it was Aretha Franklin." Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. All no right. Bad. We're going to move into the uh, final section of the show. One of my favorite things called getting to know you or rapid fire questions. We're going to ask Eric a few questions to get a deeper insight into uh, a little bit about him as well. First question is often said that every counselor needs a counselor. Mm. Eric, who do you talk to when you need to listen here? Uh, so I have three. I have three very, very close friends, my three besties. Um, they are the people I always talk to whenever there's a challenge or a problem or something I need to I need to go to uh, Eric, Joe, and um, Jim. They're my men. All right. Uh, Next question is, what is your favorite color? I'm wearing it. (laughs) Black. Okay. It's slimming. (laughs) Okay. All right. I like that. (laughs) Oh. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that you were bullied in school a little bit there. Uh, did you like school at any point uh, based off that experience you had? Um, I liked learning. School was a challenge. Um, I liked learning. And I was uh, I was always alone at school. I had one best friend. and I just, School was okay. School was okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, 
Uh, next question. I would like you to tell me about Mrs. Dorothy Jefferson. Uh, what did you like most about her? She was your mother. She was my grandmother. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. She was my grandmother. So yes. she's my maternal grandmother. So uh, Dottie, as her husband, my grandfather, used to refer to her. Dottie was a, was a, was a dresser. She always looked great. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was one of the biggest impressions I have on of her. And the other was that she robbed me of my birthday glory. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> we shared the same birthday. I was like uh-huh. a birthday gift in 1960. So I never had a birthday. She was always present. So there you go. There you go. My birthday glory. But she was yeah. always there. And she was, she was really wonderful. I think that the biggest thing probably about my grandmother is that my grandmother was my mom's mom. Mm. My mom was a special human being. Yes. And there was a variety of interesting ways of being that my mom had that I know that came specifically from the Jefferson home. So that was probably one of the biggest, positive, most wonderful benefits of my grandmother being my grandmother was that she raised my mom. Mm, I like that. Uh, Would they both be proud of you today? Oh, it's a fine question. Um, let me ask. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't answer. <laughs> okay. I'm now, I'm now deeply concerned. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I uh, think that they would be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, do you work out at all? And if so, yeah. Do you? Go ahead. You do? And if so, when did you start? Oh, my gosh. So I started actually lifting. Um, I started playing football way uh, back in high school, but I really started working out in earnest uh, when I was probably 2004 and really started hitting the gym hard and really working out. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you, you look fit. I can tell that. That's why I threw that one in there. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, next question. Do you think challenging situations in people's lives can make them better people? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think it's the only. I think it's one of the only ways that we grow. I think that uh, I had this. Uh, so I shared an approach for you. People, you've heard of the term comfort zone, right? Yes. People talk about having comfort zones. I don't believe in them. Mm. I don't believe in comfort zones. They don't do them. Well, say what you will, they don't exist, and they're unhelpful. Well, I think the thing that we have to realize is this: we live in safe spaces. Your entire world, and I can show you actually how it's true. But almost all of our entire world are bubbles, are bubbles and zones and spaces where we are safe. We rarely exit them. When you enter a place where it's not safe, that's where you learn. Because remember, you're safe because you know how this works. That's why you're safe. You're safe because you know the rules, you know the regulations, you know the spots where you shouldn't go, where you shouldn't be. You understand the terrain that's what keeps you safe. And in that place where you're safe, you rarely learn anything new because you know how it works. Mm-hmm. So the only thing you're doing is you're adding to a body of knowledge that already exists. You're building on a foundation that's already there. So there's nothing new added to it. If you need to learn something new, you gotta go out where it's not safe because you don't know the rules out there. You don't know how it works. You don't know what you have to do to stay safe. Yeah. So that's where learning happens. That's right. where growth happens. 
And mm -hmm. that's when we're faced difficult, challenging, and hard situations where we're feeling unsafe. That's when you learn because you're forced to. You're forced to adopt new ways of being, new ways of thinking. New knowledge has to come in because you need to re reacquire yeah. what? Safety. Yeah. So the only way you're going to reacquire safety is by learning what's going to make you safe and how to do it. That's why we got to get out of the place, spaces where we are, where we are safe in the places where we are unsafe. So we can go from safety to lack of safety, back to safety again. It goes zoop, 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 boom, and we keep going. Gotcha. It's kind of like um, someone saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, get new friends, kind of <laughs> get out that safety zone. <laughs> uh, yeah, that will elevate uh, your game. It will elevate your game. Uh, do apologize. <laughs> uh, tell me, Eric, what do you wish you had known in the beginning of your career that you know now? Mm. Um, I wish I had known more about how I solve problems. Sorry, go ahead. I wish I had known more about how I go about solving problems. I wish I had known more about myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think as we grow in our businesses, because they're intimately tied to who we are, they reveal to us more about ourselves if we're paying attention. And I wish I had known more about myself. And if you're asking a specific question as to what specifically I wished I knew back then, um, I wish I had known how vitally important other people were to me. Mm -hmm. That would be the specific thing I wish I had known. Because okay. part of what I took out of the, a difficult and hard upbringing was how to be alone with myself and not believe I needed other people. So that was one of the ways I kept myself yeah. safe was I stayed away from other folks. And by the way, this gets mm -hmm. back maybe to the issue in terms of people within our culture, within our community, we've been so traumatized and life has been so challenging for us, particularly in the U.S. and in North America, that we are almost always self-defense and self-protective. It's just part of the epigenetics of how we show up. So as a result of that, we often go in a situation, fists up, deflector shield up, rather than welcoming and wanting in and lack of trust because it's part of the epigenetics that has been passed on to us uh, generation after generation. And I know that that's certainly potentially for me how I showed up in life in the world through the difficult situations I have, which is not to be very distrustful of others, um, to not allow people in close. And I wish, looking back, that I had been far more open, far more vulnerable, far more welcoming um, of others in my life. They aren't there to hurt me. They're there to help me. That's I wish one thing was in addition. Okay. All right. Uh, two two more questions and I'll be done sure. with this piece. Uh, second to the last. Which was a better show? 
Good Times or the Jeffersons? Oh my gosh. Um, I like the Jeffersons. Jefferson? Okay. Yeah, All moving right. on up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving okay. on up. One thing my parents always yeah. talked us was like, move, just move on up. Keep moving on up. Yeah. So I yeah. like it. Yeah. Yeah, I did like that show too as well because it showed a, a business owner. That's something we didn't really have a lot of back then, and that was a very positive image that uh, that really uh, affected me at a young age. Um, last question is: Is there any question that you wish I had asked you? Any question you wish I'd asked you? I think that probably the question that might have been very well that would be helpful is when I work with someone in the work I do what is the most helpful thing that I have found through the years I've been doing this for 40 years what's been the most helpful thing I have found in helping people and what's interesting is the fact that I've done a, a number of interviews and podcasts and work with people no one asked me that question so if I were to answer that question, you want me to answer that question? Absolutely. That's my question. I was just about to ask you that, but go ahead. <laughs> I, do. I want you to answer. <laughs> I think the most helpful thing that I do that helps people is a practice that I use called stillness practice. And it's a thousands of year old, of years old practice. And I will just give you, I'll tell you about it. Um, and now describe it because everybody does it. And when I describe you doing it because you've done it, Tiki, you've done it. Almost every human being that's ever set foot on the face of the earth has done this. When I tell you what it is that we've done, you'll understand why being still is so important to us. I'll give a couple of examples. You tell me what fits for you or you've done this. It's nighttime. You're standing outside. The moon is rising. There's not another, there's no clouds in the sky. But the, as the moon rises, which is a false statement, as the earth rotates toward the moon. Exactly, yes. Right? You'll stop. You'll pause, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll look at it. Mm -hmm. You might pause for a second. You might pause for 10 seconds. You might go past people who are transfixed just watching it. You ever watch the sunrise? Yeah, have you ever stayed up all night just to watch the sun come up? I haven't, no. Okay. Do yourself a favor and do that one day. Just just watch the sunrise. Have you ever stood outside on a clear night where the stars are there and just looked up at the stars? Sorry. Yeah. On a starry night. All of these are moments in which or or here's one. Have you ever had an intense conversation with someone? Have you noticed in all those instances, you don't move? Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. You don't mm -hmm. move. You're still. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why. There's a reason why we don't move and amazing things happen when we don't move. I don't know all the science behind it, but I know this, that in important things that happen in life, we typically are still. We still ourselves mm -hmm. often to pray, 
to enter our spiritual domains and dimensions. We still ourselves to have the most important conversations. We still ourselves to watch phenomena that capture our imagination, moonrises, sunrises. When we have a broken bone, we set it in a cast so it can be still. When we're still at night, when we sleep, it's the only time that our brain is able to heal and repair itself, which is why we need at least seven and a half to eight hours of sleep per night. Otherwise our brains don't function well. When we want to calm ourselves down, when we're feeling anxious, we typically, you'll tell someone, calm down. In other words, know what we're saying? Be still, be still. Mm -hmm. And we all know the verse, if you know the Bible says, be still and know. Let's take, it's interesting, if you even remove God from that, it's be still and know. There are some amazing things that happen when we're still. So the most poignant thing, the most powerful thing that almost happens, and the way I begin every single coaching session with every single client I have is within two to five minutes of the stillness practice of just being still. And when that when we come out of that practice of stillness, there's an amazing thing that happens that's transformative with every single one of the one of my clients and people I've ever done this with. And when I teach stillness, is you go from go to slow. Everything calms. Mm-hmm. Everything centers. Everything go to slow. Good in that moment. And from that place you're able to do you're able to do work at that point. So that is the most, I think, transformative thing that I do within within my practice. And it's an ancient practice. It's powerful. It's transformative. And it changes people just by being still. I encourage you to try it. Just sit still with your eyes closed for for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it today. Definitely make sure I like that. All right. That's it. Yeah. Well, um, Mr. Eric Owen Russell, it's definitely been a plum pleasing pleasure to speak with you today. But before I give my final thoughts, can you share with our listening audience where your social footprints can be found on social media? Absolutely. Thanks so much for asking. Where can people find you or locate your information at? You will find me on Instagram under Eric Owen Russell Coaching. So you'll find me that E R I C O W E M R U. Go ahead and give us your social media footprints, Eric. Sure. You can, of course, find me on my website, ericowenrussell.com. And you'll also find me on Instagram where I hang out there at Eric Owen Russell Coaching. So E-R-I-C-O-W-E-N-R-U-S-S-E-L-L Coaching. So you'll find me there. I don't do Facebook, but and I don't do TikTok, but oh. yeah, the website works and so does Instagram. You'll find me there. Okay. All right. I'm going to go ahead and give my final thoughts here. Tiki, did you want to say anything before I give my final thoughts? Just that I appreciate being here. This was very informative and give me some insight into my own thinking. And, and I appreciate being here and hearing you talk. Thank you. Thank you. Did you, did you learn a couple things? More than a couple. There you go. Actually, yes. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let me give my final thoughts. <clears throat> They say that elephants never forget. I'm not really sure if that's true or not, but I do know you can tie a rope around a baby elephant's leg and tie him to a small tree, and he'll soon realize he's not strong enough to pull away from that and stop trying. 
Let's fast forward to that same elephant when he's around, say, 10,000 pounds, walking back to that same tree or similar tree and tie his leg up, and he will remember and try not to leave as well. He is relying on past memories. With that being said, I feel that the illiterate of our current society are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn, just like that elephant would have to do. Remember, everybody had a story to tell, but we just want to know yours. My guest host today, Tiki, thank you for being here. Of course, Mr. Eric, thank you for being here too. Until next time, thank you guys for listening. Look forward to seeing you again. Peace. Thank you.